Good morning. Morning. If you, uh, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Tim, and uh, it's good to be here again together. And uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. Every week we practice coming together, and one of the things we do is open up the Bible. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And we're going to read the first 13 verses together. How, how, how is everyone finding this series so far? Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's good. You're not going to say it's bad in front of everyone, are you? So this is the time to ask you. But uh, as you find Nehemiah chapter 5, if you're struggling to find it in a physical Bible, just turn to Psalms and then go back a few chapters, uh, a few books. That's the quickest way. We're just going to, I'm just going to rewind to where we have already been. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer, and he changes occupation to become the builder of the walls of Jerusalem. His city's been in ruins, he's been in exile, but now him and the whole team of people are back in Jerusalem, and they're building the walls together. And last week we heard... As we looked at Nehemiah chapter 4, they were provoked to give up. They were, the enemy was trying to spread lies and cause disunity. But they're pressing on. They're not giving in to the lies. They're united. And this is where we find ourselves right now as they carry on rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Are you there? If you're not, it's on the screen. Fantastic. Now... The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we are the sons and daughters of numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Sorry about my voice. Do you find that when you speak the Bible out loud, sometimes you take on a different voice? Others were saying, it's not intentional. We are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to gain grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on the fields and vineyards. Although we are all the same flesh and blood, our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because of our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard this outcry and these charges... I was very angry. To go remember that point, Nehemiah was very angry. I pondered them in, his mind, in my mind. And then I accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them. Sounds like church, right? Called together a large meeting. And said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people. Only for them to be sold back to us, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the interest you are charging them. 
1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will demand nothing, sorry, anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. As you go about your everyday life, I wonder, have you seen things or thought things where you have thought, what is the point of that? What is the point of that? I want to throw some pictures into your mind. If you could put up the first picture. The next one. What is the point of that? Let's just, let's say the next one. And that, if you look at it, what is the point of it? You know, which council signed up off that? I do not know. You just keep running through them. An electric pet, petter, interesting. What is the point of that? This product contains peanuts. Nice. What is the point of this gate? These are all real as we go through them. He's got his... Look, if you look at his back, he's got his wiper. <laughs> Sign not in use. Absolute pointless. Come on, what is going on here? I think that's all of them. See, the book of Nehemiah is about building the walls of Jerusalem so that the people of God could come together and worship the one true God. And God wanted his people to be distinctive from all the other nations. And Nehemiah 5 hits us with this question, what is the point of building a wall around Jerusalem if you're going to act like any other nation? The whole point of the story of Nehemiah is gathering of God's people so that they could be a light to the nations. And at this pivotal point in the rebuilding of the wars, what good is it to have a great war for the people of God if internally they're acting like everyone else. God is not just trying to build a pointless wall. What God is wanting to build is a faithful and distinctive community who would worship him and then they would be a light to the nations. So let's just unpack this story together. From the beginning, we see that there's a great outcry from the people. Right in verse 1. Why? Because they're in famine and they're struggling. And Nehemiah notices three sets of people. Those whose families are many and need grain to stay alive. That's number one. Number two, those who are mortgaging their fields with vineyards and houses and their houses to get grain. Number three, those who borrowed money to pay the king's taxes and they've sent their sons and daughters who have become slaves. See, these people have money problems. They were struggling to pay their bills and put food on the table to the extent they were remortgaging and they were putting their children out to slavery. Surely this is not God's plan and purpose for them. Let's just pause for a moment. You've left your land or in exile. You've come back to your home city. You're building the walls of Jerusalem and you're rebuilding a better life for yourself, and you're having to face hardship to the extent 
You're sending your children out as slaves. Children could be hard work, but none of us, none of us want to make them slaves, right? Maybe I'm the only one, but we don't. <laughs> See, Nehemiah's response in verse six of what was going on. It says, "I was very angry." He was not happy about what was going on in the community in Jerusalem, in the people with the people of God. And the next bit I love because he doesn't respond in anger. He says, "I'm ponder. I pondered in my mind." See, pondering is good, right? You've, have you ever felt angry about something? Maybe something at, at home or something injustice in the world. He ponders it. He allows his thoughts to breathe and to be reflected upon and digested before he speaks, goes, or does. What are you angry about, Nehemiah? And in verse eight, we get his big speech. He gathers a large meeting of the official Jerusalem. You can imagine he gathers everyone and says this. As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews, the people, our people, and we've sold them to the Gentiles. Now we are selling our own people, only for them to be sold back to us. He's saying this: we were sold out to the Babylonians, and we were under the way they were living when we were in exile. It was ugly, it was costly, and it was unjust. But now we're selling ourselves to ourselves. We've taken the way we lived in Babylon and applied it to our community in Jerusalem. What is the point of coming back to Jerusalem if we're going to act like any other nation? You see where he's going with this. And it says there was silence. Fantastic. <laughs> There was silence. Just to let you know. In my notes, I said, "Be quiet, Tim." <laughs> silence. Everyone in the room is, was silent. It was like you could hear a penny dropped. They kept quiet because they had no argument against Nehemiah. They had prayed and fasted for months. They've been working on this rebuilding project for years to go back to Jerusalem to be the people of God in their home city, only to act like the Babylonians in their moral standards and also their community care of one another, and that was pretty low. And Nehemiah goes on to say this in verse nine: "What you are doing is not right. You shouldn't walk in. Sorry, you shouldn't walk." In the fit, shouldn't you? Sorry, shouldn't you walk in the fear of God, to avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending people money and grain, but let us stop ongoing interest. Give back to them immediately their fields and vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the interest you're charging them. Do you see what he's saying, church? Our own people are struggling. Because we are profiteering, and we're not taking care of them, this is not the community of God we were meant to be. This is not how we're called to live as the people of God. Where is the heart of God in what we're doing? His response is this: well, their response. Sorry, they said we will give it back. 
We would not demand anything more. And I just want to bring two thoughts out of this passage. The first one, if you're writing notes, is being faithful. Nehemiah says in that verse 9 to the people, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? Or how you treat one another? The community you're meant to be? I think he's saying be faithful. Biblically speaking, to be faithful is to be reliable, steadfast, unwavering to God. And God is looking for faithful people, not just to talk the talk, but to actually walk the walk. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God? We all know those Christians. They're good at saying the right things, but maybe not doing the right things. Their words don't correlate with their actions. And in this context of this passage, it's how we treat one another matters to God. We live in time in history, I think you would agree, where knowledge is king. We love to feed our minds with information. For most people, it feels good and liberating to know, doesn't it? I think there's an unspoken emotion attached to knowledge. And this, the more I know, the safer I feel. Have you ever felt like that? The more I know, the safer I feel. And therefore, we have an inner drive to know. Whether that's to know what's going on in the world, whether it's to know what's going on in a friend's life, whether that's just to know generally, I want to know more and more. And we esteem those professions and people with high knowledge, those that can retain information and communicate it quickly. And this hasn't helped by the explosion of the World Wide Web, where we can enhance our knowledge at any moment. We could be on a train ride, we can be at our desk, we can be without, with friends, and we're constantly enhancing our knowledge through the World Wide Web. And if you think about it, companies are paying millions of pounds to be at the forefront of your knowledge. Because if they're at the forefront of your knowledge, they can influence your knowledge to where they want to take it. Knowledge is king. Last week, I was at the Tate Modern in London. Has anyone been there? Some of you, some of you. I wouldn't call myself arty at all. I'm not going to say I am. But I am interested. I'm interested in how a urinal can be classified as art. It's just crazy. Or a plank of wood could cause so much discussion amongst some international students. I just don't get it, personally. But I'm sure someone will put me right. Uh, But there was this art I came across which blew my mind. We've got a picture of it here. Can anyone guess what this art is about? Tower of Babel. I don't know if anyone said this. This is the Tower of Babel. This is in the Tate Modern. And Babel is a large-scale sculpture installation that takes from a circling tower made from hundreds of second-hand radio stations. And all those radios are actually turned on and tuned to a different radio station from around the world. And they're all put at low frequency that you can hear them just about. 
But altogether, you could imagine it is a harsh, harsh discord of sound and information and voices and music. The artist took the inspiration from the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, who were a group of people trying to build a tower to reach God, and God was offended, and he, he, he caused them to have all different languages. And the artist was trying to communicate. In today's world, we're so constantly bombarded with information and knowledge, it comes to the extent of a harsh discord. Humanity is trying to find knowledge to understand meaning and purpose in life. But what really is happening, there is so much information to work out that we don't actually do anything with it. See, knowledge in following Jesus is great. Reading scriptures, listening to sermons, podcasts, reading books, debating theology, talking about the kingdom. These are all things I do every single day. And as I read scripture, I believe Jesus did it too. Maybe not the podcast. But for us, knowledge is not the goal. Biblical faith is not based upon I know, so I am. That's new age spirituality. Biblical faith is about learning and practicing the way of Jesus. It is both listening and walking. I know personally, I've opened up my Bible, I've listened to a great sermon, and I've been inspired by, wow, what an amazing sermon about this passage. I want to be like that, what that person's talking about. I want to do that tomorrow. But in practice, my kids are screaming and keeping me up all night. I don't do it. And a week later, it is a distant memory. There needs to be an output to our knowledge. It must affect our walk with Jesus and how we live in community. And Nehemiah, he gets angry because they knew how to live as the community of God, but they weren't doing it. I expect they were good at talking about it, but not good at walking and actually doing it. There can be a temptation for an unhealthy obsession of knowledge in Christianity, but we read the words of James, and it's up on the screen. It says this. Hopefully. Do not mere listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. We cannot just be hearers, we've got to be doers. And in Nehemiah, they had the knowledge of how to live as the people of God in Jerusalem. But they weren't doing it. They were living in Israel, but like they were living in exile. And for us today, 
God has called us out of exile. He's called us out of a world to a new community centered around Jesus, one in which we love one another. And are we going to be faithful people to God and the word of scripture in being a hearer and a doer? Let's move on to my second thought. And it's about being a distinctive community. See, in Nehemiah, we see they have the knowledge of how to live as God's people and community, but they didn't do it. And this very point is that they want, that God wanted them to exercise being an authentic community that looked very different from all the other nations. If you want to be like that, go and live in the other nations. This is the people of God. And in this context, it was about how they gained money from one another and how they did not look after the poor among them. It was time of famine that the people's needs were staring at them right in the face to the extent they were putting their children out for slavery and still they were not acting like the people of God. As we've heard, Nehemiah says, this is not right. This is the community of God, not the community of Babylon. See, it makes me think, is what would be distinctive about our community? What should be distinctive about our community? When I was 18 years old, I had the opportunity to go and work in Durban, in South Africa, working with a local church out there, but also working with different organisations in England and in South Africa. And the first week we arrived, we spent the whole first week of learning about the culture, And it was so much to learn. There was so much culture to learn. And it was basically an impossible task to teach us about this culture. But we went into the local village, which was a township. And as soon as we got there, we went to the only shop in the village. And it was owned by this man, basically a tribal leader. And if you wanted to live or to work in the village, you would have to have his permission. Also... After we met him in the only shop who sold all the food in the village, we went round his houses. When I say houses, it was more of a uh, mud hut slash tin shells of a house, but they were houses. And we then met, yes, this is it, his seven wives. Interesting. And, and then he had fought over 40 children combined with those seven wives. See, this was a massive culture shock for me. We went into people's homes in that first week. And as we went into their huts, we soon realised they had a TV in there somehow and also mobile phones. But when we went into these huts, they would always offer us food because it was shameful for for, for, for them to have a guest and not to offer food. And then it was shameful for us not to accept the food. I can tell you the food is very different to what we experience in this country. See, we quickly realised that this culture in this village is very different from what I've ever experienced in my whole life. So different to the Western middle-class culture. We quickly realised as we left the village and the the township, 
there was also a very different culture because this village had, had a set of culture and the way they lived and how they looked after each other, a set of beliefs. It was so in their DNA of who they are. And we've probably all experienced this even when we go on holiday. I've been very fortunate a couple of times we've been to Portugal and Algarve and we stay in a place called Albufeira. Does anyone know it? Maybe not. A few people. But in Albufeira, they have the old town of shops, cafes, restaurants, bars and markets. And you go to any bar or restaurant and what's on the menu? A very British menu. A lots of all-day English breakfast, ham, egg and chips. And you've gone all this way to eat this food. You might as well have just gone to Porquay to a local pub. But there's something more serious about this. For the people in Jerusalem... They were living like the culture in Babylon. They weren't being distinct. They were living this distorted way of how they, how they look after each other and they care for one another. See, how we treat one another and care for one another in community, summarized by the word love, is really important to God. We are called to be distinctive to the world out there. This village in South Africa was distinctive even to the surrounding villages and the towns and the cities. And we're called that as well in our time. What about us? Living in 21st century, we are very different from biblical times. We no longer live next door to each other. What is distinctive about our community compared to the world? Is it our deep love for one another? We're devoted in fellowship. We're sharing meals together. We're generously giving our time and gifts. We're sharing what we have. We're caring for the poor, the widow and the orphan. We're selling property and possessions to give anyone who had need. We like to cross that one out. Sacrificially giving to one another like a family. See, this is a real challenge for us. If we're honest, it's a real challenge for us to be like Jesus and the early church and how we apply this today in this community. Not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk, to practice what we preach. There's a bit of Black Eyed Peas theology for you, isn't it? A community centered around the teachings of Jesus and that we don't just talk about it, we actually do it. And God had called them to be a distinctive community so that they will be a light to the nations. But they were all about their own selfish gain. But God was looking for a faithful community and a distinctive community. Let's think if we look out from the church, we think about the cracks in our society. Many people's basic needs are not met of food, shelter, heating and care. And this is our country, one of the most advanced and developed countries in the world. We are blessed to live here, but the financial cracks are there to be seen by everyone. The Resolution Foundation, who's a think tank charity, shared these startling statistics. And it's this, 25% of people cannot afford to save £10 a month or spend any money on themselves or even turn the heating on when needed. That is startling for our country. 10% of people have not eaten when hungry because they cannot afford to. They're not going on a diet. 
they literally cannot afford their next meal. This is startling. There's a massive equality in our society. The richer are getting richer, the poorer are getting poorer. And all this has an impact on people's physical lives and also their, their mental health. Even now, little is still spoken about the pandemic of loneliness and anxiety in society and even in the church. There is a big pandemic of loneliness and anxiety in our society. My belief that some of the biggest things. It is crazy. We've become, sadly, we've become numb to these facts that people out there and even people in our church, maybe, are struggling. If we're honest, if I'm honest, sometimes I become numb. Get on with my everyday life. For us as a community centered around Jesus, he calls us out of the world. See, the Jesus invitation is always come and follow me. He birthed a new community which wasn't against the world, but it was distinctive to the world. We're not against the world, but we are distinctive. This community should look very different from your community in your workplace or even maybe even your families or where you live. We should look very different. A community that is deeply moved by our love for one another. Spiritually speaking, we've all once been in exile and we're living far away from Jesus' teaching and practices. The challenge like the story of Nehemiah, although we are in community, is that we are not sold out to exile to the world. We're not living like the rest of the world. The challenge is to deeply love one another, to be in deep fellowship, is to share meals together, generously giving our time and gifts, sharing what we have, caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, even selling stuff so that we can give to those who are in need, sacrificially giving to one another like a family. See, this was the heart of God for the people of Israel. He didn't want his people to be like any other nation. He said, no, I run very different to all the other kings of the world. I am Jesus, the King of Kings. And when I gather my people, it is distinctive to that. And are you going to be faithful, not just to be hearers, but to be doers too? Being faithful to God by hearing and doing, listening to the teachings and practicing what Jesus has said to do. Are we going to be distinctive and how we impact the community that reflects the heart of Jesus and our love for one another. And Pete and the team are going to be leading us in a moment. But I wonder, as as I conclude, for you to ask God, how do I need to be faithful and distinctive as I'm part of this community? God, show me something. You can't do all of them. We know that too much. But what are you saying to me, God? Let's just spend a few minutes just literally asking God, how do I be faithful and distinctive? <laughs>